please be advised that some of the audio that you will hear during this series may be uncomfortable and triggering. I was physically abused, not sexually, but you know, I was beat, I was hit a lot, um, I was punished. It was total submission. I couldn't, I couldn't ask a question unless I was spoken to. I could not talk unless I was spoken to. If I talked before somebody talked to me, I was hit, beat, put in isolation, locked up. I think the most devastating thing that a cult can have on children is their lack of self-respect, self-esteem, um, lack of imagination, of being free to grow as an individual. Because each, each person is treated the same, each child is treated the same. There is no um, expectations for them in life to be more than just a cult member. tell you who I am as to whether or not you believe who I am or not is up to you. When you call Jesus, really you have called me. I'm a convict. I'm an outlaw. I'm a rebel. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. In the shadows of cult leaders, it's not uncommon to find children. Dozens have been housed at the Koresh compound in Texas. The cults generally want the members to be working a lot. They want them to be slaving away and, and doing all kinds of things. So, so kids get in the way. So cults will tend to shove kids in the background. They're, they're an inconvenience. In any cult, power, control, and an isolated message are the systematic gears and drivers of daily life. This was the case with the Children of God cult, along with a really screwed up and dysfunctional presentation of sexual behavior. What makes it even more insidious is that it is wrapped within religious ideology and relayed to young children across the world. As I listened to Olivia, Heather, and Serena's stories, I found myself thinking how cults of the past went viral in an area of analog technology, but now they may be even more dangerous in our hyper-digital world. My hope is that these stories shine an eye-opening light on some dark practices and groups that have existed and most certainly will exist in the future. In many ways, the best way to begin to stomp out evil is to shine a light on it so that it can't hide in the dark anymore. Chapter 2 Olivia's Childhood I think I probably started to realize when I was like eight or nine. So we actually moved to Austin. So, okay. So we, we went to San Antonio and we were in this home called the Oak Tree Home. That was probably one of my happiest memories because the leadership was for the most part, really good. There was this lady named Auntie Sue who loved to spank kids. So I was like, she loved getting us in trouble. She loved making us work really hard. She was in charge of the kitchen. So whoever's in charge of the kitchen had a lot of power because they were responsible for everybody's food. Um, but besides her, we were really happy because my mom, she loved teaching us with music. And it was like, you know, we were constantly learning stuff and learning carpentry and going hiking. And, and we had all of our little best friends. So we were like a little pack. Uh, I actually had like my first sexual experience that, that around that time because, you know, it's a bunch of kids and we're all really curious. And we were playing like doctor and house and like touching each other and also, it was a very sexually charged environment anyways, like we, sex was just a normal thing. We learned about sex very young. And so 
we were experimenting as kids as well. But um, but for the most part, I mean, I was happy. I loved singing and performing and going out and asking people for donations. I mean, I think because of my mom, she made it such a happy, beautiful, pleasant experience that it was really great. Um, we we had to move out of that home, so we moved into the city, into another oak tree home, same. Um, same like structure, same adults. So that was also really good. By that time, my sister was like 12, 13, my older sister, and she was having some trouble with the adults. So I think I'm pretty sure that's why we moved to Austin. So we had to leave San Antonio. I had to leave my best friend, Becky, that we'd grown up together and all the people that I knew. And so that was like super hard. We moved to Austin into this home that had very low standards. We got lice in that home. It was really dirty. Um, the kids all had incontinence issues and they were like older, they were young teens. And it was just, we went from this really like good functioning home that had their shit down to a really, really unstable, difficult home. But it was the first time that the adults really saw and accepted my older sister. She had a really, really hard time. And so that was like the first time she found friends. So she had other young people there that were the same age as her that loved her for the first time. So my story is so different from my older sisters is so different from my younger sisters because we all had such different experiences because we were all living in our own little like age group with different adults taking care of us and so she had a really hard time I mean she would get bullied by the young kids that were her age and um it was hard for me to watch her her struggle uh so she actually liked that home I was horrified because I was like away from, you know, the kids that I knew and these other kids were like weird and smelly and the standard of the home was so low. So we would have the regional shepherds that would come and visit each of the homes and check on them. So you'd, they'd come and see, okay, like make sure that everybody's like living up to standard and uh, protocol and stuff like that. They came and visited us and they're like, we're going to demote you to FM if you guys don't get your shit together. Basically. So my mom's worst fear was getting demoted from like top status. So she was like, okay, we had to find a different home. So it wasn't super easy to just move homes because you didn't have any of your own money. You didn't have any money at all. So you would have to ask and then you'd have to get permission from whichever home you're trying to go to. And a single mom with three kids was a burden on a lot of homes, except for that my mom wasn't because she was an incredible teacher and an incredible fundraiser. So she ended up being like so valuable to every home. Every home ended up really wanting her. But then she had these three daughters, you know, and my older sister was starting to go through this rebellious phase and she was just trying to express herself and was getting like completely dampened at every turn. And anytime she was so smart and she would ask questions and they'd be like, stop asking questions, you're being disobedient and she'd get punished. So that was just making her just more and more upset. And my mom, because she was just totally under ideological possession at the time, where it's like serving Jesus is her life's mission and being in the family is the best way to serve uh, to serve Jesus so we have to do whatever it takes to make this work and so she would side with the adults against her own daughter which was very hard so she found this home for us in Saltillo Mexico and so we moved to Saltillo we drive there we pack up the car and we drive down to Mexico and we join this home and the home, each home was supposed to be a democracy. It was supposed to be voted upon by all the members, but you had these homes that were mom and pop shops. So you had one couple that was dictating everything and like literally dictatorships, like they, they ruled the house. There was no voting. They would typically allow single people to join, like single mothers that they could really influence that felt, you know, like they had to just say yes to whatever was happening. 
And in Mexico, the homes were very much uh, fundraising centers. So they would send my mom and um, anybody else that was available up to the States to fundraise. And the fundraising trips looked like canning at a light. So that was a very common way that they would fundraise was asking for donations at the light. We're missionaries. We're doing missionary work down in Mexico. Can you donate? And the people at the stoplight would, um, and they would be like competing with homeless people a lot of times, you know, but they would make a lot of money, a lot of money. So they make thousands of dollars and then bring it back. And then that would last them home for a couple months. So mixed mixed in with this was missionary work. You know, we would like get a bunch of donated food and clothes and we would go and give them to like the poor villages and tell them about Jesus. And we had an actual missionary work type of thing happening. My older sister was just really just couldn't stay in that home. Um, Augustine was the, the uncle of that home. So we called the men uncles and the women aunties. And he was really abusive and he was really abusive to the kids and, um, and it was just a really bad situation. So they told my mom, so the way that they would communicate from God was through prophecies. So we were supposed to get, so these were some of the daily practices. We get prophecies from the Lord every day. As you sit down, you get quiet and you wait for messages from Jesus. And that was something that the shepherds like had to do. So they'd get a prophecy and they'd be like, okay, well, this is what the Lord said. You know, I got this whole like down, down they're called downloads. Now I got this whole download. So uh, we think that you need to leave the home. You know, you need to find another situation for your daughter. So again, we're like nowhere to go, kicked out. So we had been coming to Austin. My mom had been going to Austin to fundraise and she met this couple in Austin, Texas, and but they were FM. And it was the only home that was open to accepting us at that time. So we had to lower our status. We go to Austin, they live in this trailer park. And it's this just a couple again, a single family. She's from the Philippines. He's like this huge 300 pound uh, man. And it was very common for a lot of these type of guys who were leaders in the group to have like left very disgruntled once um, grandpa died or once like the leader died because they lost their positions of power. And so they were still kind of living the life of the family, but they were really like just kind of abusing people. So he started like coercing my mom to have sex with him behind his wife's back, which was totally against like the whole nature of the law of love. And we were going to this private school called the Good Faith School with this lady named Miss Maxwell, who had this, she taught school out of her super smoke filled, nasty house because she just chain smoke all day long. And she had other kids that were there, not from the family, but that people were just wanting to like homeschool their kids. So it was a lot of dysfunctional teenagers. So this is like our first experience outside of a big home, outside of the group. We're kind of like, so people who are outside of the group were termed systemites. So we're kind of like halfway out the door being systemites and it was horrible. Systemites, prophecies, halfway out the door. Olivia's story makes me think of how power is used in devious ways to spread a message. Under the cloak of a downloaded message from a prophecy, a family must move on and find a way to survive in this world. So the way that they would use, yeah, like the prophecies was really like really sad, like especially um, with my older sister. I remember in Saltillo, Mexico, one of the shepherds came through and they got a prophecy that she had really masculine energy. And that's something my sister never forgot. Like, I think she's possessed by a male demon is what it was. Yeah. So. This stuff like really just fucked with her and she was such a good girl, you know, and so we go to this home. 
we're going to the Good Faith School. And his, so his fundraising strategy was that we would go to the dollar store and we would buy these big bags of lollipops. And then he would take us and drop us off at like Whataburger or the food court at the mall. He had his little rounds where he would take us and drop us and we would go up to the tables and we'd ask them to support our, over oh, like, oh, we're going on a field trip. And so we're raising money for our field trip. Can you buy a lollipop? And of course they're like, oh yeah, these kids, you know? And I got so good at this that I knew exactly like how to compliment somebody or right when I should like insert like a, a smile or compliment. And then they would just dish out the money. Like I would sell lollipops for, a, they'd give me a hundred dollar bill, fifties, twenties. Like we made so much money, you know? And he would let us keep a little bit. He'd give us a little bit of an allowance. It was the first time we ever had our own money. So we'd go to Walmart and I'd always buy stuff for like my mom and my sisters. But we, so we would do that every weekend. And then one time this lady was like, haven't you guys gone on that field trip yet? Because it was months later. And I, I got like, so it was the first time I had to like lie. And I was like, Oh, it's another one. We already went to that one. I made up this whole field trip. So we weren't going on any field trips. So I made up this whole field trip and then said that we were going to go on another one and had to just off the top of my head, come up with a new one. And I'm like nine years old. And so, and then, so one time we're at this, uh, this other little restaurant and we go, we run through really quickly. He'd be like, be super covert. You know, you don't want any of the management to see you because we don't have permission to do this. So we'd run in with our lollipops and sell as many as we could and then jump in the van. But this time, this guy pulls up his truck, blocking the van from getting out. And he gets out and he's like super angry. He's like, what are you doing with these kids? And uh, Gary was his name. He's like, oh, nothing. He's like, they're raising money for a field trip. He's like, I don't think so. He's like, uh-uh, first of all, like, you guys don't have permission to do this. Like, I, he's like, I'm calling the cops. And I'll never forget, because I'm, like, sitting in the back, like, panic-stricken. Like, up until now, all the fundraising and performing and the singing that we had done was, like, people loved it. We were supposed to do it. It was totally, like, in like with the family, they did things like with permission. That was a big part of it. But we were living in this FM home, which wasn't really like up to standard. And he's doing all this shady shit. And I'm sitting there like, oh, my God, like we're going to go to jail. I'm like so scared. Somehow Gary convinces him to let us go. Right. This guy also, he had a super bad anger problem. So when he would freak out, he would throw, like one time he grabbed this um, super heavy roller blade and threw it at his kid's head. He would line us up and spank all of us with a paddle. And he's like 300 pounds. We'd be black and blue. And so it was a very, very like, not good situation I, I after that I was like I can't do the lollipop selling anymore so I would go and make balloons balloon art was another a very very popular form of fundraising we would do parties and my mom was really good at balloon art so they would teach everybody would learn the different tricks of the trade like the, the best fundraising uh strategies um so then um in the middle of the night my mom comes to us one night and she's like kids we have to go we're like, why? What's happening? We're also kind of excited because we're like, this place is a hellhole. She's like, yeah, we have to go pack your bags. And, you know, she's like trying to hold back the tears. She was always like so strong. She's like, it's going to be okay. She's like, we just have to leave. We're like, what's happening? She's like, it's fine. So we pack up all of our stuff and we have to leave in the middle of the night. And what had happened was um, Janet found out that Gary was like hooking up with my mom. And she was super pissed, of course, you know, because they weren't living the law of love in a home. And and my mom told us, she, I mean, I remember us having this conversation at our age and she's like, yeah, he would just have me like touch him, you know, and like she would give us all that. Like, it was just like, ah, mom, it was so embarrassing. So we get inside the, the car and she's just like so full of faith, you know, she 
barely let us see that she was worried at all. And we started heading to Florida where her mom lived because we would go visit her like once a year and she would provision hotels along the way. And she would look into people's eyes and they would just melt. Like we would go to gas to a gas attendant and she'd look at them and she'd say, how's your day going? Or how are you doing today? And you could tell that they were being seen for like the first time and they would just, ah, and they, she'd hold their hand and pray with them and they would just give her whatever she wanted, you know, so she, they'd give us hotels and gas and food. And so we made our way to um, Florida and on the way we stopped in another FM home, Linda and Manuel, and they had been out of the group for a while um they were fm too and meanwhile we had gotten a an invitation from the oak tree home the original oak tree home and they told my mom that she could join with me and with Maze, my little sister but not with miracle my older sister they're like we'll take you but not her so you have to find a situation for her and so she left her my sister was 15 she left her with this couple, Linda and Manuel. And I remember it was like the first time my heart getting ripped out of my chest because my sister was my best friend. And, and she was like the protector of the family. She was always like, she grew very tall quickly. So she was taller than my mom. She was just a little bit bigger built. And she was just very strong. She was such a strong person. And so she, and very rational. So she would like think about things and she would explain things to me and I, she was like another mom for me. And um, I was, I guess, 11. And, uh, and so we separated from her. We went back to San Antonio, rejoined this home and they wouldn't even let me talk to her on the phone because she was out of the family kind of, she was another status and that's how they, they were. It was very incubated like that. So if there was somebody who was out of the group or even a lower status, they were very worried about the negative influence. So they didn't want any sort of outside system influence coming in. So I barely got to talk to her. And so I, I was 11, 12. Um, at this point, I'm starting to get really rebellious too and curious about things outside of the group because uh, I'd already kind of gotten a taste of it. So I had my friend Becky back. We were 12 and we were boy crazy. I mean, we were just like very, very hyper sexualized. So they, we didn't have as much supervision in this home. So I remember we would uh, dress in like tiny little shorts, tiny little tops. And we would walk down in the very Hispanic part of San Antonio so that all the Mexican guys could honk at us and wave at us. And just like, we needed all of this like boy attention. And I would lie about my age and say I was 16. And we all we could talk about was sex and losing our virginity. And um, you weren't at this, uh, at this point, you had to be 16 and you had to have parental permission. So um, we would do like everything we could with like the neighbors, and then, so we're living in San Antonio and then Mama Maria sends out a mandate to the whole group. And she's like, if you're living in the United States, you're not really a missionary. And so you need to go to third world countries. So she made this huge like exodus for all the people that were in the US because they, they, were, they weren't, they weren't doing missionary work. They were just these like communities getting all the free stuff, living and just living very cushy lifestyles. So our home broke up. Becky went to Taiwan. My other best friends went to Mexico City. And we joined this other group, Michael and Debbie, to head down to El Salvador. So we get into this big, we had this big caravan and we head down to Mexico. And we had a bunch of kids, Michael and Debbie and my mom. We had a big uh, station wagon and a SUV and a trailer attached to it. And all of them had American license plates. So as soon as we're going through Mexico City, we're like a prime target. So we get pulled over by the cops all the time. They surround the adults, they take money from them. Uh, I remember one of my favorite parts about this 
trip was listening to Cat Stevens. So Debbie, she loved Cat Stevens and she'd play him the whole time. And it was like the first time we're like listening to this system music. And it was just great. I loved Cat Stevens so much. So we would provision hotels along the way. One night uh, it was really late and there was only one hotel open. Uh, so the adults got out, my mom went and provisioned it and they were looking at her really weird. Like, you guys want to spend the night here? And she's like, yeah, they're like, okay, but the, the owner comes in the morning. So you guys have to be out by like 7 a.m. So we go into the room and it's not like a normal hotel. There's like a mirror above the bed. We turn the TV on and there's just porn. So it is an auto hotel. So all the kids are like, what is this place? <laughs> so we spent the night with all the kids and the adults in this auto hotel. So we leave early the next morning and we're making it down. It's Independence Day in uh, Mexico. So it's in September. So there's all these parades happening in the streets and it's all very exciting. And we stop, we're almost to the border of Guatemala and we stop at this hotel and uh, we're all bringing our stuff up. And um, I went down to go to the car to get some stuff, but I ended up on the wrong, I pressed the wrong floor. So on my way back, I, I thought I was like, let's say it was, we were staying on level of uh, floor four. I went to floor three and I went down the hallway to the room that I thought was ours and knocked on the door, tried to get in, but it was locked. So I knocked and this big guy opens the door and I'm 12 years old. And, uh, and he like sees me and he looks around and he just reaches out to grab me, to pull me in. And he grabs my shirt and I start screaming and like throw his hand off and like run as fast as I can. The door opens and the manager of the hotel is standing in the elevator and he sees me. He's like, what's wrong? And I like tell him and he's like, no. So he takes me to the, so came super close to getting kidnapped. Um, and uh, go back into to the room with all of the, the kids. So. We finally get to El Salvador, January 2001. So Y2K had just happened. That is what happened. So why, we were expecting Y2K. We didn't know what was going to happen. Nothing ends up happening for Y2K. So year 2000 is when Mama Maria is like, all right, guys, you need to go be missionaries. So it's 2011. I think it either it's January. 2001 January El Salvador a massive earthquake hit so we had just gotten there we had just set, in, set up our home we lived there for a couple months and the whole country is devastated by this gigantic earthquake that was and I'll never forget it because all of a sudden the house is like shaking and we all run out into the streets and the our huge stone wall like splits in half and everybody's out there screaming the poles are falling down and for weeks after we would have such strong tremors that we would fall off of our bunk beds but the cool part of uh, about that whole experience was that we came to El Salvador to be missionaries and all of a sudden we had this all of this work cut out for us so we partnered with the military. We would ride in their huge military convoys and go down to these poor villages that had been completely like buried and submerged. And we would bring refuge to them, clothes, and we would sing and dance and bring happiness. And even though the country had just completely gotten devastated, the people were so happy and radiant. And I had never experienced anything like that. Like these people were just so grateful and happy to be alive. And we had so much work to do there. Um, so we were very like involved with this, uh, bringing relief to the countries, which was exciting. But we were also super naughty, like teenagers that were wanting to explore and experiment. And in El Salvador, you didn't have... Um, age limits on buying alcohol or anything like that so we would go down to the corner store and we would get alcohol and we drink and we were right by this military school uh so my sister is four years older than me and the only other there were any other kids my age in this home so they were her friends that were like 15 16 17 and then there was me I was 12 and then the kids that were younger 
So I was trying to like stay with my older sister. Oh, so my older sister rejoined us to go down to El Salvador. I forgot to mention that. So she came because she was best friends with Michael and Debbie's kids. And thankfully, she was able to rejoin us to go down there. They, they wanted her. So that was awesome. So we were next to this military school of all, the, all of these delinquent kids that their parents had sent them to El Salvador to go to military school from California. So they spoke English, but they would take us to these parties. And I remember that's when I saw my first orgy was that they brought me and my sisters and their friends and everybody got drunk and they all just started having sex. And I remember I tried to have sex with this boy named Eagle and because I, at this point, I'm like this teenager, I'm like, okay, I need to have sex. Like, this is what everybody's doing. I can't believe I'm still a virgin. I just turned 13 and I'm like trying to have sex, but it didn't really like work, but I'm still like trying everything else. And, uh, and I remember we would go, we went one night, they took us to this like whorehouse. So we, I just like started seeing a lot of stuff happening, you know, this earthquake, sex parties, orgies. And then this was another one of those homes that was kind of like Iron Esther in Austin, where the standard was really low. They couldn't make a lot of money. So we were eating peanut butter sandwiches every single day or tuna, peanut butter or tuna or cream cheese. And the quality of the house, like the cleanliness was really low. And so we had, again, we had leaders come from Guatemala, they checked on the home and they're like, you guys can't uh, continue to be FD and run this home. So my mom had to find another home. So she found um, David and Tirza in Guatemala. So six months, about six, seven months after we joined this home in El Salvador, we went to Guatemala to a much more strict environment where they had tons of supervision of the young people even the, the home in the mountain was like, had iron gates and barbed wire to protect it. So I go there, my older sister's like, I'm not going to be in the family anymore. She's like, this is bullshit. I can't do this. So she leaves, she's 17. And um, again, so hard for me because she's like my best friend. So she leaves to the States and I'm in this home where the adults are super, super strict. And uh, started going, to, we had school there, 13. One of the older boys in the home had a, a hookup for weed. So we started smoking weed and um, we're visiting with the neighbors at any opportunity that we can. We're like sneaking out and trying to like socialize with people outside of the group because, you know, we're just so curious and our options were so limited in the family because. You only had the people that you lived with. And then you have the other homes that were in the area of young people. So all the young people at this point are kind of in the same place. Everybody is rebelling. Nobody wants to be in the group. We were all born and raised there, but we didn't decide to be there. We're all wanting to experiment. We're wanting to like try drugs. We're trying to wanting to like engage in sexual activities. But we have the adults who are like, you know, keeping us confined and impinging on our freedom, so to speak. So we had these neighbors and I remember we went over there one time for a party and I snuck a bunch of alcohol and I got really drunk. And so my, one of my really close friends, Claire, she was a few years older than me. She brought me into her room and she took off all of my clothes and she like laid me in her bed so that the adults wouldn't find me. But in the middle of the night, I woke up and she was like, she was like touching me. And I remember I had butterflies in my stomach because I was like, oh my God, what's happening? What's happening? Because I really liked her. I thought she was like the coolest chick ever. She was like this artist and she was super edgy. And um, I was just so like, and I remember just turning over and we started making out. And I was like, oh my God, this is the craziest experience. Uh, then the next morning, she just like pretended like nothing had happened. And I was like, ah, my life has changed forever. Uh, so I graduated high school when I was 15. And we, I'd go with my mom to this beautiful street in Guatemala City called Cuatro Grados Norte, four degrees north. 
And it was like this little European street. It had restaurants and bars. And um, we would make balloons there to fundraise. So whenever I would go on break, I would talk to one of the bartenders or one of the waiters. And I ended up like getting their phone number and like making friends with them. And bit by bit, I would start to tell them about where I lived. And then I was like, you know, I need to get out of here. And um, before that happened, uh, I had convinced my one of my friends, Chloe, to get off of, of the bus. We were on our way home and it was jam packed full of Guatemalans. And we made a pit stop at, at, uh, at a mall. And my mom was in the back of the bus with the other adults. We would always go two by two. So they didn't see us get off the bus. And I knew they weren't going to see us. So I was like, come on, let's go. So we got off. We went and called our neighbors, these guys, to come pick us up, to take us to an auto hotel so that they could divergenize us. So I like had schemed out this whole plan because I was like we have to get our virginity taken so they take us to this like and they have no idea either I remember afterwards the guy's like were you a virgin and I was like yes so I was like okay take us home so they dropped us off and we made this whole story like oh we got lost you know so I was like at the height of my rebellion so I graduate high school I'm like I'm gonna get out of here I'm gonna run away but I don't want to tell my mom because if I tell her, she's going to have to leave the group because I'm a minor and I know she's happy and I want her to stay here. So the best thing for everyone is for me to run away. So I orchestrate this whole like getting picked up. It was really hard to get out of the house because it was an iron gate. It had one key and the key was held by David, who was the spiritual leader of the home. So one night a week, the adults had a movie night. So you're allowed to see one movie a week. So I picked the night. It was a Thursday that they were having their movie. I had his son go up, get the key. I had packed my bags. So I snuck out. Carlos and his other friend, Carlos, who was the bartender from that bar, were waiting for me in the car. And I grabbed my bags. And they just got me and they took me. He had everything ready for me. He had fake papers that said I was 21 so I could work at the bar. I changed my name to Lilu. I went and got a nose piercing, dyed my hair dark, even though it was dark, you know, just to be incognito. And I was terrified that night that they were going to come looking for me. They never came looking for me because they didn't want to call any attention to themselves because it was a bunch of Americans living together in a home and everybody was on tourist visas. So they didn't want to involve the authority at all. They just told my mom she was going to have to pray for me. My mom was devastated. She lost like 10 pounds in two days. She couldn't eat. She couldn't like anything. She had no idea where I was. So meanwhile, I start working. I have this like newfound freedom. I'm living with Carlos and his mom. And Carlos really likes me. And I, and I don't like him. But because he saved me, I feel like, you know, like coerced into having sex with him. And uh, I started bartending. I tried ecstasy for the first time and ended up getting fired from the job because I like had sex with somebody in the bathroom. And um, and I was just completely just in this chaotic mess. And this guy named Carlos, who was the other Carlos's friend, we became very close. Um, we became like boyfriend and girlfriend he started to look out for me and I I found an apartment that I could afford so I was living in an apartment but we would go out to nightclubs and it was so dangerous we got shot at several times one time um we had to hit the ground and crawl underneath the car and I remember that visceral terror like I felt in the car when that guy pulled his truck up behind the van and said that he was calling the cops like I was just so scared to this guy He's drunk and everybody has guns there if you have money and he's shooting the ground and we're seeing the bullets ricocheting as he's like walking towards the car that we're underneath. And I'm like, I, for the first time since I can remember like pray and I'm like, God, please don't let us die. And right then his bodyguards pull up in their car and they are yelling in Spanish that the cops are coming that they have to go so they grab him and they pull him into the car and the car takes off so really really crazy life happening I'm 15 years old 
he meanwhile has this like rage issue. He's doing cocaine all the time. And I'm like, okay, this is fucked up. Like this guy needs Jesus, I think. So it had already been several months that I'd been gone. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'll go back and visit home and see my mom because I haven't talked to her. So I call her and she's like, honey, please. She's like, come home. So we hitchhike. I take Carlos. We hitchhike up into the mountains to go visit um, my mom and the home. And they're just, you can tell, they're just like, they don't know what to do. They can't really tell me to stay, but they're like, you know, like, we're happy that she's here. So I have one of the guys come up to me. He's one of the shepherds. His name is Paul and he has a guitar and he says, Olivia, God told me to sing you this song. So he starts playing the guitar and he starts singing this song called No Mires Atras, which means don't look back. And the words go, don't look back, my love, look away. Um, and as soon as he started playing that guitar, I had this uh, like beautiful, like unconditional love wash over me. And I like literally felt my heart open. And it's very, very similar to what people feel when they take MDMA for the first time. And I felt this like peace wash over me and this knowing, like I knew at that moment that I was meant to be of service for the rest of my life and that it was my mission to like help others to find this love and this joy. And so I decided then I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to rejoin because I, I want to be a missionary. I want to tell people about Jesus. Like I felt what the, my parents had felt when they first joined. So Carlos is like, okay, well, I'm joining too. So he like, he joined with me for a little bit. And of course the adults they're they're very suspicious of me because they're like you know you've already wreaked so much havoc all the young people are like about to run away too and so they're very like weary uh two of the um shepherds the girls came and they're like we need to have a talk and they prayed and they're like I see that you are being possessed by a demon of seduction and we can see her tentacles over you and and I was like oh my god I need to pray this way you know and so um they had all of these messages for me and they were, they put me through probation through six months. And I was like, I don't care. Like, I am so determined to do this. Like I want to bring joy and happiness. And I started telling the young people, I was like, there's, you know, it's not out there. Like, this is where it's at and started getting them excited to be in the group again. And then all of a sudden all the young people were like, all right, let's do this. And everybody started to, to shift and the energy of Guatemala started to shift and right around this time, Mama Maria sent out this, um, another mandate, which was for this magazine called Activated, the self-help magazine. And the goal was to subscribe people to it. And it was like a, a life coaching health, a self-help. So it would talk about midlife crisis, communication, marriage, and it was $12 subscription for the whole year which came out to like 10 pesos or 10 quetzales a month, which is the dollar. So it was, it was very affordable. It was really easy to get subscriptions. And I was like, hell yeah, I can do this. I'm so good at selling. I'm great at like um, convincing people to do, do this. So I took over the activated project and I got so into it and got everybody into it that it actually put Guatemala on the map worldwide. So every month they would send statistics from each home, how many tapes they sold, how many videos, how many posters, how many subscriptions, how much money they made. Um, and so our, we were the top for months and months for subscriptions to activated, the Activated magazine. And, um, and I loved it. And, and I, so I was 17 and um, because the rules had changed, you couldn't have sex with anybody. So you could start having sex at 16, but you, it could only be with somebody who was five years older. So there was this guy in my home. He was 28. He was married and he was constantly like flirting with me and like grabbing my butt, which is totally normal, like behavior, this kind of stuff would happen all the time. But he was always like pushing it a little bit more, a little bit more. 
And I had already like had sex with like, I had experienced already rape by then for my time out of the group. And I had sex with like lots of guys for my age. So for me too, the restriction in age just seemed a little bit barbaric to me, but I was like, okay, I still didn't want to break the rules because I was super committed at this point. And we were, we were riding on a jet ski on the beach and I had my um, arms around him and he took my arm and like put it on his dick because his dick was hard. And it, it, the whole thing lasted for like, I don't know, we didn't even kiss or anything like that, but he felt really bad about it. So he went and told the shepherd. Then, so I got put on probation for six months. He got put on probation for six months. And then things started to get weird in the home because Jasmine, his wife, was like really mad at me for putting her husband on probation. And the adults were looking at me weird as like that troublesome teenager again, who's like stirring like trouble with the adults and seducing the older men. And, and it was just really hard for me because I was like, I'm trying to like do this right. You know, I've already done that. Like, I don't need to do that again. And so it kind of killed my spirit. And I was like, I want to go to a different home. So I moved to Mexico City, still 17, and I joined a home and it's another mom and pop shop, but way worse than any mom and pop shop that I've been in before. The couple was from Argentina and he had arthritis and he, they, it was just a dictatorship and they only had young people living there. So 18 on down. And he'd send us out early in the morning to the stoplights in the middle of Mexico City with cans. And we would have to can from dusk till dawn. And he'd come back. He wouldn't ask us how our day was. He would just be like, how much money did you make? Oh, you didn't make enough money. You guys need to go out again. And in the mornings, he would like curse at us. And he had a cane because he had arthritis. And he would like beat his daughter, who was the same age as me, 17. And it was just a nightmare. I was like, this is not what I rejoined the group for. Like we didn't even tell people about the activated magazine at all. So I remember one night after uh, Claudia had gotten really like severely beaten by her dad, we were laying there and I was like, I'm going to get us out of here no matter what. Like I'm going to go to the States and I'm going to raise money and we're going to open up our own home. So I got on a bus from Mexico City and I went to Chicago by myself. It took about three days. And in order to do that, I had to lower my status again, because I wasn't going to be reporting with a home. So there was a home in Chicago that was set up for missionaries to come and fundraise at. So he had these special permits to can at the light, but you were able to do it legally. And so people would come from all over the world, from Africa, from um like Asia to raise money because you would make thousands of dollars in a week and then you would take them home where it would stretch. So I started canning, but this time I was canning for myself and for the home that I was going to open. So I was super pumped about it. And again, I like pulled out all of the little tricks that I had and I would get these huge donations and I started making thousands of dollars and I'm like super excited. And I we already knew where in Mexico we were going to open the home in Amazatlan, which is a beach town. A couple of weeks go by and then I get an email from Plata and she's like, I'm not going to join. I can't. I can't leave my dad. I'm going to stay here. And her boyfriend who was going to join, he backed out too because she was backing out and his friend backed out. So what was a team of four, which was enough to start a home, I was by myself. And I didn't have a home. I didn't have a plan. Any home I would have joined, I would have to go through a six-month process again. So I was like, what am I going to do? And so I, I reached out to a home in Mozambique in Africa, and I asked if I could join. And they were like, yes, you can join, but you have to commit to a year if you're going to come here. And I'm like, at this point, I'm like scared of joining a bad home again, because I'm like, you know, I can't get stuck in Africa for a year in a shitty home. So I go and stay with my grandma for a little bit and I get my first, or well, not my first because I was bartending, but uh, my uh, job working at, a, at this pizza place for a couple of months trying to figure out what to do. I turn 18 and my mom is like, I miss you, come to Guatemala. And so I have like $10,000 
which I like, uh, it was more money than I could ever have dreamed of having. Um, and I go to Guatemala and somehow the adults in our home finagle all the money from me. They're like, you just need to donate it to the home. And before I did that, I took my mom and my sisters on a, like this super nice, like vacation to Panachal and I got us a hotel and I just like felt so proud of myself that I could do that for them. So the shepherds, the big regional leaders in Mexico City had heard what had happened to me. And I was already the poster child because I had run away and I'd come back and they had published my story because I was like, this is, this is where it's at for the young people. And I'd inspired all the young people. And so they did not want me to be unhappy. So they're like, come join this service home. You're not going to have to fundraise. It's much better, like, like they would get all the tithe, all the 10% money from all the homes. So they were fully supported. They didn't have to fundraise. And they're like, you can just focus on activated or taking care of the kids. And so I was like, okay. But my heart is already kind of, I'm just like so disillusioned. And I was like, I'll give it another, another um, try. What does that say? Oh, 10 minutes. Okay. Uh, so I, I joined this home and it's like the top, top leaders of all of Central America and Mexico. And I can just smell the hypocrisy and the, the self-righteousness. And I'm like, these guys do not have the spirit of the group at all. They don't care about helping people. They care about their, their power and their control. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And so my heart was just completely out of it. And, uh, they could tell. And so they got a prophecy and they were like, the Lord thinks you should move home. And I was like, no thanks, I'm out of here. So I was 19. My older sister had already left again. Oh, I convinced my older sister. She got pregnant and had a baby. And when I rejoined, I was like, you have to rejoin. Everything's different. It's going to be awesome. This is where you need to be. I convinced her to join, which was the worst idea in the world because she had a horrible fucking traumatic time her story to tell but she left again and so I was like okay I'm going to join you in Austin so I was 19 and I find I left finally for the second time next time on growing up in the children of God we tell Serena's story stay tuned